Amen. Y'all can be seated. Anybody in here a parent? Parents, parents. Okay, good. How about uh, you were an older sibling and you had a really young sibling, so you were basically a parent? Or you had that experience? Okay. All right, cool. So about half, half of you have experience with kids, half of you don't. So I am um, I'm a, I'm a dad, by God's grace. I have two beautiful little girls, a four-year-old named Hannah and a one-year-old named Clara. Uh, you can actually pray for them. They're giving my wife a bit of a hard time this morning, which is why she's not here. Um, but one of the things that I learned about little kids as I became a dad, because I grew up as, as an only child, so I, didn't, I was the only kid in the house. I had no kid experience, basically, until I became a dad. But one of the things I've learned being a dad is that when a kid wants something, they want something. There is no stopping them. They just want it. It doesn't matter what it is. I want it. And I had this experience. It was a couple weeks ago. Um, and we were, it was like 4 o'clock, between 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. And about that time, y- you're like, you're asleep. Like, you're not just in fall asleep. You're like in the deep of REM sleep. And that's where I was. I was asleep. And we're asleep, and my daughter's room, actually they're in the same room now, they're across the hall from us. And I'm, I'm the lighter sleeper, so I hear this, this wailing in the hallway, right outside our door just wailing. Just, and a four-year-old, when they want to wail, they can wail. So Hannah's just wailing. So I'm like, oh. So I get out of bed, open the door. I'm like, Hannah, what is it? And I'm thinking maybe she had a nightmare. She's sick. She threw up. You know, I'm thinking something's really, really wrong. And she looks at me, and she's like, Daddy, I can't find my teddy bear. <laughs> and I'm like, it's four in the morning. You can't find your teddy bear? She's like, no, daddy. And I, I mean, like, she is like boo-hoo sobbing. I can't find my teddy bear. I'm looking for it. I can't find it. So I'm like, okay, all right. So we go back to her room. I pull back her covers, and the teddy bear's in the bed. <laughs> I'm like, Hannah, get back in bed. Teddy bear's right here. Give her the teddy bear, and she goes back to sleep. And we laugh at that story because it, it's silly. Like, I have other more important things to be doing. I got to go up, get up, go to work. I got clients, right? I got stuff to do. I shouldn't be waking up at four in the morning to find a teddy bear. That is silly, right? Because I got more important things to do. And we can all agree that finding a teddy bear at four in the morning is less important than getting sleep so you can go to work, right? We can all agree with that. But when kids want something, they want something. What's amazing about this story is that when you think about the comparison between me as the parent with more important things to do, and my four-year-old who wants her teddy bear, there is a gap there, right? There's a gap in terms of level of importance. The things that I have to handle with are vastly more important than this teddy bear. But in her mind, she just wants it and she needs it. When we look at God and we look at us, the gap is even bigger, right? And what's amazing about God is that when we want something, when we need something, God responds with great grace towards us. And this gets even, it strikes me even more when I think about who God is, because we, particularly as Christians, we get really comfortable with, oh, God, and, you know, he's great, and those kinds, but we don't really often stop and think about who God really is, and what he is dealing with, and the, the capability of who he is. So I was just thinking about this, that Every single person, there's about 7 billion people on the planet, 
Every single person, God knows exactly what's going on with them. He knows their entire history. He knows when they were born. He knows when they're going to die. He knows what their struggles are. He knows what they had for breakfast, what they're going to have for lunch, what they're going to have for dinner. He knows, their chil- what's, he knows what's going on with their children. He knows every single detail of their lives. He knows when a baby is born, where that baby's going to live, what career they're going to have, what school they're going to go to, whether they're going to meet him or not. And he knows all these things at the exact same time. He's got a lot on his mind. And that's just, that's just the people, right? The word tells us that he cares for the sparrows, right? And that's just one, let's just take, take our planet and all the things going on, on our planet. He knows what's going on in the Orion Nebulae. He's holding the stars together. All of this, God simultaneously is managing and dealing with. And so when my little problem comes up, Daddy, I want my teddy bear, right? Think about all the things that God is dealing with, right? When we approach a person who is in a position of authority or has a like if you ever walk up to the CEO of your company, you'd be like, oh, I'm, yo, you're really busy, I'm sorry. You'd be very hesitant to approach that person with something trivial because they're busy, right? But when we think about the massiveness of what God is dealing with, what are the things that we bring to him? And when we come to this passage, this passage rocks me because it points to the fact that, and this is my only point, that God cares for us as a loving father. God cares for us as a loving father. And throughout scripture, you will see passages that, that point to this reality. And this is one of them that just struck me the other day. And what's, what's going on here, and I'll give you some context as we get into this. Second Kings is set in a time of great instability in the kingdom of Israel. It's actually been divided. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of war. Um, at times, there's civil war between the two kingdoms. They're supposed to be one people, but they've been divided. And God has sent into this crazy instability a prophet. The first one, the one right preceding Elisha, was Elijah. A lot of prophets. So God is sending his prophets to speak to the people and to call them back to him. Can you give me that water? Um, to call them back, back to him in this time of instability. So Elijah was a great prophet. And just like Moses was once a great prophet and then had an apprentice, Joshua, who took over from him, Elijah had an apprentice, Elisha, who took over from him, okay? And so we come to this passage in 2 Kings 6, and Elisha has inherited the prophetic mantle from Elijah and is representing God to the people. And assisting the prophets is this group of people called the sons of the prophets. And they are very similar to what we might think of as our deacons. So they're not the actual leaders of uh, or, or representing God in this context, but they are assisting them. And at times God does speak through them, but they are assisting them. So in this passage, the sons of the prophets, sort of like the deacons in the church, you might think of it um, in, in, our, in our context, come to Elijah and they say to him in verse one, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us, right? So they, maybe they have more people joining in, or maybe they just got tired of where they were living. More than likely, they were living in a communal setting, probably all together in one, in one dwelling. And they have an issue. They said that it's, it's too small. We want to go and cut down some trees, and we're going to make a new place for us to, to live. And as a tangent, 
This is not part of the sermon, but that's what I think is interesting. As a tangent, I think there's an interesting example here of how to deal with something in a work context. This was their job, right? They were, they were servants of the prophets. There's an interesting lesson here about how to deal with an issue in work when, you don't, when you're not happy. Because what they did is they didn't complain. They found the problem. They came with a solution. And they didn't just go do it themselves. They took it to the authority and said, we have a proposal. Is this okay with you? And he agreed. So tangentially, if you're looking for an example of how to handle a situation like that, this is a good one. But, so the sons of the prophets come to, to Elisha, their boss, right? And they said, we have this issue. This place is too small for us. And we want to, we have a proposal. How are we going to fix it? Uh, is that okay with you? And he says, in, in, uh, in verse 2, he says, go. And then one of them asked him, he said, Can you, would you come with us? Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And, and as they're going, right, one of them, and again, think about the context, instability, war, a lot of violence, weak political leaders, immoral political leaders. People don't have a lot of resources. And in that, in that, in that time, things like an axe, so what, what, you go on down, down through the, uh, the passage, and one of them is he borrows an axe, and as he's using this axe to cut down a tree, he loses one. And we might say, oh, that's not a big deal, right? But unlike today, we can just run out to Home Depot and buy yourself another axe. There is no Home Depot, right? They are out in the middle of the woods, and something like an axe would have cost a lot of money, right? Particularly in this time of instability, scarcity of resources, it would have cost a lot to replace this axe. And so this guy, when he's gone and borrowed this axe, he, has, he is in a time of distress, right? So when you get to verse, um, let me just read from verse 4. He says, so he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. And so to enter into his situation, you have to remember, he has borrowed something that is of very high value, right? He has now lost this thing, and he's thinking, how am I going to pay this back? I don't have enough, I'm living with my boys. I, don't, I can't even afford my own place. I had to borrow this thing so that I could build a place for me to live. What am I going to do now? It was borrowed. How am I going to pay this debt back? And so he's in this moment of crisis. And so as we read through it, Elisha responds in verse 6, and he says, where did it fall? And when he, sh- he said, when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick, threw it in, in, the, in, in the water, this is the Jordan River, and made the iron float. And iron doesn't float, right? We can all agree that iron doesn't float. So this is a miracle, right? And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand, and he took it. Now, a couple questions. Why? Right? Why do this? Why do this miracle? Is God, because if you, it's not about Elisha. Elisha couldn't do anything apart from God empowering him to do this miracle. So why in the world is God doing a miracle to bring an axe head out of a water? What's the point? Is God concerned with axe heads? All the things God has to deal with, he has to deal with an axe head, really? Like that is what God is going to deploy his power for? Or maybe if it's not about the axe head, is he just focused on saving this particular man. He's a servant, he's a deacon in the church, right? And God wants to save him from anxiety, perhaps. But even if he did that, why record this in scripture, right? Because John 21, 25 tells us that even about Jesus, even Jesus' works are not all recorded. So why would God, one, do this miracle, right? Use his power, and then not only that, but cause this to be recorded in scripture, and bring it so that we can be sitting here and, he, and read it and hear it. 
What's going on here? What is God up to? It's a good question to ask whenever you read the Bible. And I think the message here, the intention of what God is doing, and the reason why he has preserved this through thousands of years of attacks on his word, so that we could have it right here, is to deliver a simple message to his people throughout eternity, and it is this, that God cares for you. In the little things, God cares for you. In a way that goes beyond this man's understanding, we don't even know his name, right? In a way that goes beyond this man's theological understanding of the reality that God is a loving father, the reality that God cares, he in this moment of need, this moment of great desperation where he's like, alas, how am I going to pay this back? What am I going to do? He comes face to face with the reality that God not just theologically cares for him, but that God actually, in the moment of his need, cares for him and meets his need. And we can see God's care in two ways in this passage. The first is his provision. So Elisha was a prophet, right? A a mighty man of God, as the word would call him. And even in this passage, he's, he's referred to as the man of God. He's the heir of the great Elijah who had been caught up into heaven. And if you flip back a couple passages, flip back with me to just this chapter four, and your Bible will have some, some titles in it, right? And it'll say, Elisha, verse 18 of, of, of chapter four, Elisha raises the, the Shunammite son. And what happened in that situation is that a woman had her, her son died, right? And she goes to Elisha, and Elisha comes and heals the woman and raises him from the dead. So in chapter four, he raised the boy from the dead, a pretty, pretty important thing. Later on in chapter four, he purifies a poisonous stew and saves a number of people from, from death. Towards the end of chapter 4, he does a miracle where he multiplies a small amount of food to feed a lot of people. And in chapter 5, he heals a political leader of leprosy and saves him from disfigurement and death. And so when you get to chapter 6, he brings the axe out of the water. So even just comparing these things, right? Saved from death, right? Raise the boy from death, Leprosy, poison, and then it's like axe head, hmm, right? Very, very minor thing. But for this, for this man, for this particular man, in his time of crisis, what it communicated to him, what it communicates to us, is that as a loving father, in those minor things, not just the things of, I'm about to die, or my child has died, right? But the, the small things, the day-to-day things where I just have a need God comes through, right? That is the message of what he's saying here, that he cares for us, that he provides for us, and that he has put his prophet, just like he put the prophet in place to raise the the woman's son or to save Naaman from leprosy, he has sent and appointed a prophet to take care of this guy, to meet his, his need. And so God provides, he makes provision for this man, this unnamed man, this simple servant, just trying to find a place to live, God meets his need. The other thing is that he cares in his power, that there's a lot of different ways in which God could have met this man's need. He could have just, Elisha could have paid the debt, 
Um, he could have asked the person who he now owed to forgive him. There are lots of different ways that he could, could have met this need. But God worked a miracle. He used his power. He personally got involved and, and did this. And one of the important things about this is that nothing demands of God. Nothing, God has no obligation to any of us to do anything. Ephesians 1.11 describes him as the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Amen. Psalm 115.3 says he does all he pleases. So God was not under any obligation, right? He was not under any compulsion. He could have decided not to. He could have simply let him go his way, let him pay his debt, and he would have been just and good. But as a loving father, he intervenes. As a loving father, he makes provision. Even before the situation happened, he made sure Elisha was there to respond. And when he was there, he gave him the power to rescue and to save, to take care of this man. And this is what if we think about what is being revealed about our God in this passage, because God doesn't do anything by accident, right? And if he had just done it and not recorded it, right, he could have, he could have done that, but he caused it to be recorded. He caused it to be here in, in the scriptures to preserve it for his people for, um, for us to be able to access him to read. And so he's revealing something about himself. And what he's revealing is that he's a loving, loving, caring Heavenly Father. Romans 8, 15 says about God, about us and our relationship to God, it says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And I, I read this verse a lot, particularly um, when, I was, when I just became a Christian, I read Romans like 50 times, because Romans is a great book to understand this Christian doctrine. I read this, this verse a lot, and I remember when I, when I was in college, I went to, was home for the summer, and a family friend of ours had um, me and my family over for a party. And they, were, and they had this huge house and big pool in the back. And they invited us and a bunch of other friends. And they had some friends who were from Israel, like actual, like, spoke Hebrew from Israel. And they had just came into the country a couple months before, and they were at this party. And this, this Israeli family had a little girl. She may be about two years old. And she was playing outside by the pool, um, and she slipped and fell and, like, bumped her knee. And she, her response was to run over to her dad, but as she was running over to her dad crying, she was saying this word. She was saying, Abba, Abba, Abba. She was saying, Daddy. And so when I, 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 I remember watching that little girl saying, Abba, Abba, because in Hebrew, that's Daddy. And, and thinking, wow, this verse now makes sense to me, that God is saying that he has put his spirit in us, and that spirit of adoption causes us not just to say, my heavenly father, because that's a formal term, but to look at God to say, daddy, I bump my knee. I'm coming to you to comfort me. That is the nature. That is what God is revealing to us about himself, that though he is the great and the mighty, though he rules over everything, though he is aware of all things, though he is Lord of all and creator of all, he is your loving heavenly father. And you can come to him. You can come to him as you are. You can come to him and say, Daddy, and he will receive you. So what does this revelation of who God is call us to? So we see in this passage that he, God is revealing himself as a loving heavenly father. 
one who makes provision, one who deploys his power to care for his children. What does that mean for us? How are we to respond to this? I think Jesus helps us with this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 30 to 32. He says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So Jesus grounds a couple things, our freedom from anxiety and our faith in the great reality of what? That our heavenly Father knows that we need them, that he cares for us. And so the couple implications of this truth that God cares for us as a heavenly Father is that we can be comforted. We can be free from anxiety, right? Because we have someone who cares for us. He calls us also, the reverse of this trusting in this loving Father is having little faith. And so the implication is that if you really believe this, if you really encounter the reality that God cares for you, then you will be rich in faith, right? Rich in trusting in the one who lovingly cares for you. Now, this is not a promise of food for life, right? It's not a, a call to not work, but it is a great comfort that God is your ultimate safety net, that you have someone who is making provision for you and willing to use his power to care for you. It's, it's that feeling of having that rich uncle, right? That if something happens, he's going to come through, right? And it, it is that same sense that what Jesus says, he says, the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. So why do you worry? Why do you say, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Why are you caught up in the anxieties of life when you've got this heavenly father watching over you? Amen? And so we're called to be free from anxiety, to be rich in faith, and also to be grateful. Philippians 4, 6 says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, because God is close. He's at hand. Now, there are some counterfeits to this care. So God, Jesus is pointing us to the fact that because God cares for us and has always cared for us, and as demonstrated throughout his scripture, because Jesus would have been certainly aware of this passage, that he is a caring, loving father. Therefore, you should be free from anxiety. Therefore, you should have faith in God. Therefore, you should be grateful towards him. But we have some counterfeits, some things that we seek comfort from, some things that we seek to care for us, some security blankets. And the Israelites did as well, and we have the same ones. Flip back with me to 1 Samuel 8, chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. We'll take a look at what are some of these counterfeit things that we, that we look to. So as a loving Heavenly Father, God has been watching over the children of Israel as he watches over us. And they decided, you know what? It's not good enough. I know you've been taking care of me. I know you, you left, delivered me from slavery. You brought me through the wilderness. You brought me to the promised land. You defeated my enemies. Everything I've needed, you've, you've provided, but that's not good enough. So chapter 4, verse 8 of 1 Samuel, they say, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, another prophet, 
at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want somebody else. We don't want this person representing God. Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They didn't trust in God. God wasn't good enough. His loving care, his protection, his watching over them was not good enough. They wanted something else. And we look at this and we say, well, wow, the Israelites were sinful, but what about you? What about me? What are you trusting in? What's your security blanket? What do you go to to, to care for you? Maybe you're lonely and, and you're single and, and you say, when I get a husband or when I get a wife, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be comforted. Maybe it's a career. When I, when I get this job or I get this degree or I start this business, I'm going to be okay. Maybe it's a house. When I can move out of this neighborhood, I'm going to be okay. If this person will accept me, I'm going to be okay. We find different things to exchange the loving care of our Heavenly Father for. Things that we say, well, if I have that, if I have this, it will comfort me. It will be my security. It'll be my teddy bear. But these are all counterfeit caretakers. They are counterfeit. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord says, he says, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. But all of us do this. We all have our thing. And if you, if you thought for a second, you could name it. The thing that, that when you're in a moment of desperation, when you have that alas moment, the thing you run to, the person you run to, the thing you dream of, the thing you long for, what is that thing? God is calling us to turn away from it and turn to him. Because the reality is the reason we go to that thing is because we don't really believe that God cares for us. Maybe he does in the massive sense, in the, 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 the cosmic sense. But right now, when I'm having a hard day, does God really care? Is he going to comfort me? Is he going to be my father to hold me? Or do I have to find something else? And what he's saying to us in this passage in 1 Kings, he's, he's saying, I have made provision for you. I love you. I am your father. Come to me. See the example of how I cared for this man. And I will care for you too. He calls us to turn to him. He gives us the word of Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. It says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And so we can run crying to our Heavenly Father. Turn with me to that verse, that, that chapter of uh, Psalms. I think it's so important to look at how, what God says. So Psalm 56, in verse 8, David is saying to him, he says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. 
Are they not in your book? God knows. God cares. He keeps track of your tears. He loves you. And so because of that, when I am afraid, I put my trust in him. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? My heavenly Father watches over me. Amen? Amen. And so this man, though he would have known the theological reality, as someone close to the prophets, he experiences in a very real, intimate way the loving care of the heavenly Father and meeting his need. And you can too. And so the immediate message of this passage is that God is a loving caring Heavenly Father who meets our needs. He provides for us. He uses his power to meet our needs. But if we only see in this passage that immediate message, and we've missed something bigger, because God's, though God cares in the immediate sense, he also cares in the ultimate sense. Because in this man encountered a debt, right? He borrowed something, he lost it, and he was in trouble. There was no way that he was going to be able to pay this back. He was poor. And God made provision. He sent a man with the power to deliver him from that debt. And so even in this passage, we can see the the foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. That we borrowed everything from God the Father. And we squandered it. We wasted it. And we were in trouble. There was no way you were going to be able to pay it back. You were going to stand before him condemned. But he made provision. He sent a man. And that man had the power to deal with that debt, to cancel that debt. Colossians 2.13 says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He says, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses. By what? By canceling the record of debt. That stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so God cares for your your teddy bear issues. But he deals with your ultimate issue in Christ. That he deals with the debt that you have towards him by sending his son. That Jesus is the man of God. This, this, prop, this son of the prophet, when he was in trouble, he said, Alas, my master, the man, of the, the man of God, he couldn't go to God directly. There was no way for him to talk to God. He had to talk to this guy who could represent God and do something about his, his situation. But we now can go to Jesus. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a priest. You don't need anybody. You got Jesus himself who was able to take care of every single need that you have. And so why not go to him? Why not go to him? Ultimately, God has shown us his loving care in the cross. And so if you ever doubt that God loves you, look at Jesus. Look at his provision for your ultimate need. A.W. Tozer, who was a theologian, he says, he says, sometimes I go to God and say, God, if you never answer another prayer while I live on this earth, I will still worship you. As long as I live and in the ages to come for what you have done already. He said, God's already put me so far in debt that if I were to live a one million millenniums, I couldn't pay him for what he's done for me. And this is true. But the miraculous thing is that God is so good that he continues to care for us. That he's met our ultimate need, but he continues to make our daily needs. What does Jesus say when he tells us, he teaches us how to pray? He said, our heavenly father, give us this day our daily bread. 
Day by day, your Father watches over you. Day by day, He meets your needs. And so when you have those moments when your life is dark, when you're afraid, when you reach for your teddy bear and it's not there, run to your Father. Run to your Father who cares for you. Your Father who has made provision for you in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. But maybe you're here and you don't know God as your Heavenly Father. Because we are all created by God, but not his children. John chapter 1, verse 12 talks about how Jesus gives us the right to become the children of God. And so if you don't know Jesus, then you actually don't have a heavenly father. You have a creator who is gracious towards you, but he's not your father. Because only in Christ can you come to know him. And so if that's, if that's you, every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, if if you want to experience the reality of what it means to know God as Father, to, to experience this loving, caring God who makes provision and uses power to care for us, then I invite you to, to trust in Christ, to come to him. He opens his arms to you and say, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest, he says. If that's you, I want you to slip your hand in the air and talk to you about Jesus. Or maybe you do know the Father, but when I talked about counterfeits, that thing popped in your mind. That thing that you run to, that thing that you trust in, that thing that is a comfort to you when you've had a hard day. I want you to talk to him about that right now. I want you to say to him, Father, forgive me. Help me to trust you. Help me to call you daddy. Help me not to replace you, to hew out cisterns for myself that don't hold any water. But help me to come to you, the, the rivers of living water, and be comforted by you. Just take a moment and do that. Gracious Heavenly Father, Daddy, thank you. Thank you that I, a sinner, can come to you and walk right up to you, crawl into your lap, put my head against your chest and confess my weaknesses and be accepted by you. Thank you for making provision for my ultimate need in Jesus Christ. Thank you for making provision for our ultimate need in Christ. Thank you for meeting all our needs, for watching 